can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Acts chapter 2. We are in Acts chapter 2. And uh, if you are using these black Bibles that are scattered underneath the uh, seats around you throughout the sanctuary, you will find Acts chapter 2 on page 855. Acts chapter 2. As we continue our sermon series entitled, He Lives, Aftershocks of the Resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus was like a massive seismic event that shook up the entire cosmos and changed everything. In fact, I would, I would easily rank it among the top five events of the history of the world. And the four other events also have to do with Jesus and are tightly connected to the resurrection. In fact, all of these events hang together uh, in God's global purpose. The other four would be uh, Jesus' incarnation, Jesus' death, Jesus' uh, ascension, uh, Jesus' uh, resurrection, and then ascension, I should put it in that order, and then uh, I'd put this fifth one on that list too, which is Jesus' giving of the Spirit during Pentecost as described in Acts chapter 2. All of these events hang together by necessity. You take one of them out, and the whole structure of God's redemptive plans crumble. If you take out the incarnation, there's no Christmas. Uh, there's, there's no God coming to earth as a man to save his people. If you remove the death of Jesus, then you remove the, the means of God saving his people. If you take out the resurrection, then it means that, that Jesus wasn't really God, that he was just a, a sinner, and like all sinners, is overpowered by the grave. If you take out the ascension, you remove Jesus' rise to royal kingship and authority at the Father's side and, and his priestly intercession for his people. And if you remove Pentecost, you remove the Spirit's presence and power among His church to fulfill God's mission to extend Jesus' kingdom reign worldwide. Without Pentecost, there is, there is no new covenant community, there is no evangelism, there is no global salvation. In fact, if there was no Pentecost, you would not be sitting here this morning worshiping God and enjoying your status as a redeemed child of God. Most people don't regard Acts 2 as that critical. Some people see Acts 2 as merely a, a giant, fun, sensational camp meeting, and we should all try to duplicate the specific phenomena and the miracles and the emotional euphoria of what we see there and have a good time. Still others, on the opposite end, see it as weird and strange and, and that we, we just need to run away from Acts 2 because it's got nothing to do with us today. Both approaches miss the point and fail to perceive the meaning of Pentecost as an essential part of Christ's work, as essential as His incarnation and death and resurrection and ascension, and it's massively important and relevant for Christians today. Acts chapter 1 was a time of preparation. We've been in Acts chapter 1 for the past few weeks, and, and we saw the resurrected Christ instructing His disciples about the kingdom of God, a kingdom that in one sense has already arrived in the person of Christ, but in another sense is not fully consummated. Uh, Jesus is Lord of all, but His Lordship is not fully manifested. Uh, most people don't acknowledge His kingship. The world is not enjoying the, the, the fullness of the blessings that come through His rule. And so Jesus commissions His disciples to proclaim His kingdom and salvation to all peoples, but first 
They must wait for the Holy Spirit who will empower them on their mission. And so as we move into chapter 2, we have at this point a total of 120 believers, including the 12 apostles. And they are waiting with eager anticipation for what's about to happen next in Jesus' plan to establish his kingdom. They are, they are waiting. They know that something big is coming, and now the wait is over, and God does not disappoint. So please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our great and glorious God. This is uh, Acts chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 1 and read on down through verse 13. The Holy Spirit says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and you would help us and you would illuminate the text of Scripture that we might hear and receive and understand what the Spirit has to say to Harbin's Community Baptist Church this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So often when we look at Acts chapter 2, we are so fixated on the phenomena of tongues in and of itself, and the problem is that we can divorce tongues from its larger biblical context, and in particular from the Old Testament. So much of what is happening at Pentecost is rooted in the Old Testament, and therefore to not read this chapter with Old Testament lenses on will significantly diminish our understanding of the meaning and significance of what is happening here. And of course, we're, as you notice, chapter 2 is very large, and we're only going to take a portion of it today, and over the next couple of weeks we'll be in Acts chapter 2. And, but for today, uh, and for our section today, there's really just three main things that I want us to consider, and then after that I'll have a few thoughts on how Acts 2 applies to us today. But the first thing I want us to think about is uh, Jesus' promise is fulfilled Jesus' promise is fulfilled. Verse 1 says that when the day of Pentecost arrived. Pentecost was one of the three great annual Jewish feasts. The first of those feasts was Passover. 
the, the commemoration of Israel's redemption from slavery to, uh, to Egypt. The third of those feasts later in the year was tabernacles, which commemorated God's care and provision of Israel in the wilderness. But right in between those two was Pentecost, which was the, the feast of the grain harvest, uh, the feast of first fruits. It was also called the feast of weeks because it took place seven weeks and one day or 50 days after the Passover. And it was a time where Israelites, out of thanksgiving and praise, would offer to God the first fruit of their crop. Uh, the first fruits were, was, of course, just a taste of what was to come. It was a sign of God's abundant provision. Uh, Pentecost was also associated with the giving of the law, where uh, seven weeks after the first Passover, God took Israel out of Egypt and led them to Sinai, and there formally constituted His covenant community, designating them to be a kingdom of priests commissioned to mediate the blessing of God to the nations. And, and, and devout Jews from all over the world would, would come and, and make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost and worship at the temple. In fact, it was the most, most well-attended of all of the three feasts. The weather was the most favorable uh, around that time for travel, and so that, that, uh, that helped as well. And, uh, and Jerusalem's population of roughly 50,000 would around this time swell to, to up to four times that amount as pilgrims would stream in from every corner of the Roman Empire. And Luke says in verse, uh, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, that word arrived can, can literally be rendered from the Greek as fulfilled. When the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. Now, now let's remember that everything in the Old Testament it is essentially types and shadows that ultimately find their meaning and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And Luke here, even now, at the, in this very first verse, is, is hinting to us that Pentecost is no different. Luke says in verse 2 that suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. It's not, it's not an actual wind in the house blowing, blowing things over, but the sound of the wind is there. It's a mighty rushing wind. I, I think the New American Standard uh, translation uh, says that it was a violent rushing wind. That was the sound of it. It reminds me of, uh, I, I used to uh, live in Louisville when I was going to seminary, and that, that was uh, uh, tornado country, and uh, uh, maybe not so much as Kansas, but, but more than any other place that I'd ever lived. And every summer, these storms, these violent storms would, would come in, and sometimes there would be tornadoes in the, in the area, and, they, and folks would tell me that, that when, when you hear that, that wind pick up, and it sounds like the sound of an approaching train, take cover. That's, that's a tornado coming, and I just remember always being afraid of just hearing that, that train sound come. Maybe it was something like that that these, that these uh, believers are hearing uh, in the house, but it's the sound of wind. In the Old Testament, wind represents the Spirit of God. In fact, the, the Hebrew word ruach can mean wind or breath or spirit. Same thing with the Greek word uh, pneuma. In the Old Testament, the Spirit Himself is the very wind or breath of God. Of course, the, the Spirit is, is not wind. The Spirit is God. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, you need to know that there is only one God, but He exists as three, three persons, the Father and, and the Son, who is Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we first meet the Spirit in the opening chapter of the Bible. 
Way back in Genesis chapter 1, where we see the Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters in creation. He is the the creative power and presence of God. And the the Word of God and, and, and Word and breath are tightly connected. The Word or breath of God is bringing into existence life itself. Indeed, we see the breath of God going into Adam and, and giving him life. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the Spirit is the one who takes a heart of stone that hates God and turns it into a heart of flesh that loves God. In Ezekiel chapter 37, in the vision of the valley of dry bones, the, the wind of God, the very breath of God is entering into these dead bones and filling the people of God with life. So the Spirit of God in the Scriptures is, is seen as the creator and the recreator of life. And here in Acts chapter 2, the sound of the mighty rushing wind marks the coming of the Spirit to bring life. It means that at long last, Jesus is fulfilling His promise to send His Spirit. Which leads to my next point, where at Pentecost we see Jesus' presence is provided. Jesus' presence is provided. Do you remember on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples were really distraught about uh, Jesus talking about leaving them. Uh, for, for three years, they had walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and enjoyed Jesus' presence and His guidance and His teaching and His provision and His protection, and, and now He's talking about going away, and they're really upset about this, and Jesus says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. He says, it is better for you that I go away. You're better off without me here among you in this way. Now, Why? Because when I leave, Jesus says, I'm going to send to you another helper, another comforter. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and He will be with you and even in you. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will return to you. Later on, as He commissions His disciples for mission, He says, I will be with you always. Now, how can Jesus do that? How can Jesus be with His disciples always? We just saw in Acts chapter 1, Jesus leaving them, Jesus physically ascending to heaven. So, how can He be with His people on earth? He does it through His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. When when we think of Acts 2, we tend to think of it in terms of only the Holy Spirit coming. But just as important is that Acts 2 marks the coming of Jesus to be with His people in a new and better way. Dennis Johnson writes that the sound of the Spirit filled the whole house just as the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle and the temple long ago. The Spirit was consecrating a new sanctuary in which God would dwell among His people. And what's that sanctuary? Is it a building? Is it a mighty temple of stone? No. His his new sanctuary is His people. And not just these 120 here that, that we're reading about. Later on in Acts 2, Peter is going to preach to the multitudes and tell them that the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit is for all who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. Which means that if you are here this morning and you believe in Jesus, you are among the latest in a long line of people who for the past 2,000 years have received that gift. That's why Peter later on can write to all Christians in 1 Peter chapter 2 that you yourselves, 
like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, what's a spiritual house? It's a temple. Uh, it's, it's the place where God dwells. Uh, the God whose presence used to be manifested in the wilderness tabernacle and, and later on the, the physical temple in Jerusalem, now his presence dwells with all of his people. And so you could really think about it this way. What started at Christmas is fulfilled and finished at Pentecost. Jesus truly is Emmanuel, God with us. And don't let that amazing reality just pass you by. Christian brother, Christian sister, do you realize that because the Spirit is in you that Jesus Christ Himself is in you? This building that we are in right now is not God's house. Do you know that? It's not God's house. Sometimes we call structures like this the house of the Lord. Folks, that's actually Old Testament thinking. Because it's not that when this service is done and you are dismissed and you go away and you leave this building that you're leaving God behind. And you just have to power through the week on your own until you come back next Sunday and to, to try to get a little touch from God again. Not at all. When you leave this place today, Jesus Christ goes with you. He goes with you. He goes, he goes back to your home. Back, back with you to your trials. To your job. Back to all the other things that God has called you to do. All the situations that He has called you to be in. And, and he, is, he is with you, helping you, and empowering you every step of the way through His Spirit. Sometimes we're tempted to think that it would be so much better if we were just like back in time in AD 30 with those 12 disciples and, and Jesus was right there with us, hanging out with us in the flesh. Don't sometimes you feel like that? If only I could just be back then, it would just be so much better than my situation today. And, and we act like our situation today is, is that, that we're in some sort of inferior, impoverished state compared to those disciples that were with Jesus in the flesh. And that actually is not true. If Jesus were still here in the flesh and under his self-imposed limitations, how much fellowship do you think you'd get with Jesus when there are millions of other Christians standing in line ahead of you waiting to spend time with him, waiting for his help? Jesus says, it is better for you that I go away. It's better for you that the Spirit come. I, I am with you and I'm with all of my people through my Spirit. And this is further reinforced by verse 3 which says that divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, in the Old Testament, fire and wind were often associated with theophanies, uh, with, with the appearance of God himself. Like when God appears to Moses in the burning bush or at Mount Sinai where the presence of God was manifested through smoke and fire. Or you think about that, that pillar of fire that led Israel through the wilderness and, and rested over the tabernacle. But notice here in Acts, this fire isn't congregating in just one place or with a select group of people. Instead, these, these little pillars, these, these luminous tongues as a fire are resting where? upon every believer in that room, all 120. The Spirit is present with His people, not just collectively, but also individually and in a very personal way. That's unlike the Old Testament, where, where the Spirit would come upon a few select people. 
leaders, prophets, kings, a a small handful of people set apart for unique special service to God. Here in Acts 2, every believer is anointed by the Spirit and set apart for service to God. And, And so what is happening here in Acts 2 is really something like what we, uh, something like a second and better Sinai. <laughs> In the Exodus, God's people were redeemed from slavery, and 50 days later, they were brought to the mountain where there was wind and fire and the awesome presence of God among them. And God told Israel in Exodus 19 that you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And it was there that God constituted his people into a nation for service, for the, the purpose of mediating the blessing of God to the nations. And here... In Acts chapter 2, 50 days after the fulfillment of Passover through the sacrifice of Jesus, the risen Jesus is now reconstituting his people, built not on the foundation of the 12 tribal leaders of Israel, but on the 12 apostles. And these people are are the church, uh, the ecclesia of God, the the Greek word for church is ecclesia, which means the called out ones, those who are set apart for service to God. And, 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 And this time, unlike the Old Testament situation, it's not just a handful of select leaders that are being empowered by the Spirit, but it's the entire people, the entire community of God, the, the, the entire church is. And so the Apostle Peter then writes in 1 Peter 2, 9, that you are a chosen race, church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the goal. That's the mission. That's how the kingdom of Christ advances in the world, through the proclamation of Christ's excellencies through the gospel. This is essentially what Jesus tells the disciples in the Acts 1-8 commission, where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. But I'm so glad that that's not all that Jesus said. If that, if that commission, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, if that was the extent of Jesus' words, that would be depressing when you think about how daunting the Great Commission is. But thanks be to God that before Jesus gave the commission to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, Jesus first said in Acts 1-8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that's what's happening here in Acts 2. The Spirit has come not just to fellowship with them, but to empower them. And and so as Jesus fulfills His promise, and the Spirit arrives in this house and comes upon all 120 believers, now the waiting is over, it's game on. And these 120 can finally launch the mission, which leads to my next point, which is Jesus' purpose is revealed. Jesus' purpose is revealed. Look at verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each, of, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. The tongues here are actual, actual languages, languages that these disciples did not know before. Now all of a sudden, they are having the ability to speak in this way. And it's really surprising to the people there. They're like, aren't these Galileans? 
Now, you, know, you have to know a little bit of the history to understand why they are bewildered. Galileans had a, had, a, had a reputation for being kind of like backwater country folks, uneducated country bumpkins. Who are these people? You know, they're speaking these languages all of a sudden, and they're shocked and surprised by that. Galileans were known for having a strange accent as well. And so, uh, so I, I guess it, it would be the equivalent of, 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 uh, of, of somebody uh, s- suddenly speaking in Cantonese with a, with a Mississippian accent. It's like, oh, how, how do they know this language? Now, now wh- why tongues? Why tongues? What's, what's the point? What's the point of doing it this way? The works of God are never arbitrary. They're never random. They always have a particular purpose. It's not like God is sitting up there saying, okay, I've done some wind, I've done some fire, what else should I do now? Oh, tongues, that would be cool, boom. And it just does that. And there's just no particular purpose. It's done out of a vacuum. What's the purpose? Well, some might say, well, maybe the purpose is so that everyone present could understand the message regardless of where they came from. That's not a bad guess. Except for the fact that if that was the purpose, it really wasn't necessary. Koine Greek was the lingua franca, the common language of the Roman Empire. Everyone there would have spoken it. So, so, it, so it would have really been easy for the disciples to communicate to everyone without the phenomena of tongues. My, my, my guess is that you read more of Acts chapter 2, and he's preaching to thousands of people, my guess there is that at that point he is preaching in Koine Greek. And again, that's something that everybody could, could understand. Um, so if that's the case, if, if that's true, if there was already an easy way to communicate the message to everybody present, then the purpose of tongues is not merely pragmatic or utilitarian. That's why, by the way, if you're going to be a missionary, you should not skip language school and just pray that the Holy Spirit would enable you to speak in Arabic tomorrow. I'm not saying that God can't do that. I'm saying don't count on it as your missionary strategy. Acts 2 isn't showing you a shortcut to to, to getting to the mission field tomorrow. So what's the point of all of this if Peter could just speak Greek and everyone could understand well, let's remember again, Acts 2 is steeped in an Old Testament background. So, so think about this with me as we look back to verse 5. Uh, verse 5 says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That's probably one of the most important verses in Acts chapter 2. But it's, it's one that gets skipped over because it's not very sensational compared to some of the other verses. They are dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Dwelling in Jerusalem, in other words, people who are coming into Jerusalem, staying there temporarily. They're there, they're pilgrims, they're pass, uh, not Passover, they're, they're uh, Pentecost pilgrims. And, and you, have, you have people there from all over the Roman world. Over the centuries, the Jews had been scattered into many places outside of Israel And over time, they became associated with these other nations, even adopting the native tongues and the dialects of these places. But on this day, 
Because it is Pentecost, again, the most popular of Jewish feasts, you've got a massive ingathering of people from outside of Jerusalem pouring in. Tens of thousands of people from various nations and tongues have come into Jerusalem. In fact, if you look at verses 9 through 11, you will see a sweeping representation of nationalities spanning most of the known world at that time, from, from east to west, from, from Rome to the Caspian Sea in the north, and, and from Africa to Mesopotamia in the south. And the crowd also included a racial mix of Jews and Gentiles. We know this from verse 11, which mentions proselytes. Those are people from other races, other ethnic backgrounds who have converted to Judaism, and, and now they're, they're coming to worship in Jerusalem also. Luke, Luke wants us to clearly see the diverse international makeup of this crowd, especially distinguished by the plethora of language groups that are present. Indeed, what you have in verses 9 through 11 is a New Testament table of nations. You ever heard that phrase before? table of nations. In Genesis chapter 10, you have what many call the table of nations. And it's a listing of all the various descendants of the sons of Noah, who after the flood, they were dispersed and scattered all over the world in various regions, and they were grouped together on the basis of language and culture. And and if you're reading Genesis 10, you're reading that table of nations, and then you go into Genesis chapter 11, you get the story of how that dispersion, how that scattering happened in the first place. And you know what Genesis 11 is about, right? What's what's Genesis 11? Somebody say it. Babel. Tower Babel. And what do you have at Babel? At Babel, you have a, a one people, a humanity that is united. They are together, and they have one language. They have one tongue. That sounds like a good thing, right? Well, that's what we all want. Just all be together, all united, all on the same page. But it's a problem because they are united against God. God wants them to spread out over the earth and glorify Him but they are more interested in glorifying themselves. And in in defiance of God, they begin to construct this tower as a testament to their own name and their own greatness. And in an act of judgment, do you remember what God does? He humbles them by confusing their languages, by giving them different tongues. And now there is disunity and division in humanity. And God scatters them across the face of the earth. And from there, we get the nations, we get the various peoples of the world, the various tongues of the world. So God judges, but God also aims to show mercy. Because you keep reading, and you go into Genesis chapter 12, and there God selects a man named Abraham. And God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation And through you, all of the nations of the world, yes, those nations that I just scattered and cursed back in chapter 10 and 11, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. And through Abraham comes Israel, and through Israel comes Jesus, and Jesus lives, and he dies for sins, and he is raised, and before he ascends to heaven, he tells his disciples in Luke 24, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, 
and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And so with all of that in mind, you come to Acts chapter 2, and what do you have? You have a great gathering of the nations. You have different races. You have different languages. You have have people from different regions and cultures, and Pentecost happens, and Pentecost becomes the anti-Babel. Dennis Johnson writes that the coalition of pride at Babel was shattered by the Lord's confusing of the rebels' tongues, thereby scattering the human race over the face of the whole earth. But Pentecost signaled the reversal of this judgment, a drawing together of people from every nation under heaven, not to erect a monument to their own pride, but to glorify God for His salvation. Pentecost, the fulfillment of Pentecost, is is the beginnings of the reversal of Babel. While Babel was all about the exaltation of man's kingdom, which results in confusion and division, Acts 2 is all about the inbreaking of God's kingdom into the world, which results in a healing of that division as God begins to usher in a new age where language and ethnic and cultural and racial barriers and divisions are broken down. And the whole earth is full of the people that are united in Christ and for Christ. Of course, not all will receive the message and believe. Verses 12 and 13, there are a crowd of hecklers mocking the disciples, accusing them of being drunk. On the other hand, if you skip all the way down to verse 41, you'll see that many listen. You'll see that 3,000 end up believing the gospel and are saved. And so we've gone from 120 to 3,000. You want to talk about church growth? (laughs) That's phenomenal. All of a sudden, at one point, they're like Harbins, and then all of a sudden, they're a megachurch. I think we need to start preaching the gospel more, y'all. And, and that number is just going to increase as we keep reading through Acts, as, as the gospel proclamation, which begins in Jerusalem, radiates outward and extends to the ends of the earth. So yes, folks, the, the incarnation and, and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ are all massively important, but brothers and sisters, Pentecost is the crowning gift of Christ's redemptive work, where the Spirit comes and fills not just 12 people, not just 120 people, but thousands of people from every nation under heaven. Pentecost is not promising that everyone who receives the Spirit will have fire over their heads, hear violent wind, and speak foreign languages. Instead, Pentecost is promising that God's work of blessing the world will be fulfilled. He will bring the nations into himself. What what you see in Acts 2 is not the end of the story of kingdom expansion. It's just the beginning. Those 3,000 souls that experience salvation that day are just the first fruits of the global harvest. It's just a taste, just a sample of the abundance to come. Because God's designs have always been bigger than just one small group of people in one small corner of the world. Isaiah 52, 15 says, he will sprinkle many nations. Psalm 2, 8, God says 
to his Christ, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Pentecost is the dawn of the messianic era. The age of the Spirit has come, that the Spirit whom will be poured out on all peoples, Joel chapter 2 says. One of my favorite scriptures that speaks to this is Psalm 87. Love, love, love the scripture where God foresees a day when the various scattered and divided peoples, the, the, the nations of the world, will be considered one united people of God, all equal citizens of the kingdom. Listen to what God says in, in Psalm chapter 87. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab. Rahab, by the way, here is a nickname for Egypt. Among those who know me, I mention Egypt and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush, that's Ethiopia, This one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. In other words, God is seeing the various peoples of the world as if their passports are stamped Zion or Jerusalem. Even those from Egypt and Babylon whom the Jews would have seen as the worst of God's enemies, the worst of of Israel's oppressors, they also will be be regarded as full-fledged citizens of Jerusalem, full-fledged members of God's kingdom along with the Jews. Folks, God is not some local tribal deity with limited borders and influence. That's often how the gods were seen in the ancient world, the, the pagan mythological gods the God of this land, the God of that land. You go beyond the borders and that, God, that God's power and influence are lessened. That's not how Yahweh is. That's not how our God is. Jesus Christ lays claim to and aims to save men and women from every people and every corner of the earth because it's all His. Amen. It's all His. And he deserves to be magnified and glorified, not just in one spot with one people, but everywhere. Now, that's all well and good, but what does that have to do with you and me today? I mean, this is cool, but how do I connect Acts 2 with my life right here, right now? Is this passage telling me that that if I've received the Holy Spirit, that I should expect to experience the phenomena of tongues? There are groups that believe that, and that becomes a big place, of, a big part of their theology and practice. But I, I would say that that's not the right application of Acts chapter 2. Don't expect to walk out of this place speaking Swahili and Hindi and Japanese. It's not the application. So if I shouldn't expect that, then what's the point? Well, let me just give you a couple of points of application. These aren't in your notes, so you can just dot, jot them down wherever in your, in your bulletin if you want. But first... The phenomena of tongues is not an end of itself. They are speaking in these languages, but they aren't speaking random things. They're not talking about the weather. They're not talking about sports. They aren't complaining about the evils of the Roman government and Caesar's political policies. And they aren't just saying nice, warm, fuzzy, politically correct, positive messages that are designed to affirm people and make them feel good. These 120 believers are preaching. And what are they preaching? What's the content of their message? 
Look at the end of verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And what are the mighty works of God? Is, is this about creation? Is it about parting the Red Sea? Is it about, about David beating Goliath? What, 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 what works of God are we talking about? Well, if you go down to verse 22, you know what the central focus of their message was that day. Namely, the mighty works that God did through Jesus, which would be His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and His pouring out of the Spirit, and that the salvation that, and, and the salvation that comes to all who call on His name. In short, the mightiest work of God is what He does through the gospel. The most important thing in this text is not the thing that we tend to focus on. It's not the mere phenomena of tongues, which of course gets us into all kinds of debates about that topic. Does this happen today? Are you charismatic, not charismatic, somewhere in between? What about miracles? Those are not unimportant questions, but if that's your whole focus, you miss the point. The most important thing in Acts 2 is that Jesus' commission to his disciples is fulfilled through the preaching of the gospel and the exaltation of Jesus. The person and work of Jesus are put front and center of everything that is going on in this entire chapter. We tend to regard Acts 2 as a Holy Spirit chapter, and we should. But what we don't recognize as much is that Acts 2 is a massively Christocentric Christ-centered chapter because the whole ministry of the Holy Spirit is not to bring attention to himself. How, how, how do you know that, Deemer? Well, Jesus says in John 15 that the Holy Spirit will testify about himself? No. He says the Holy Spirit will testify about me. That's the Spirit's job, to put Jesus in the spotlight to put Jesus on display, to offer him up to the world as, as, as the bread of life and the only one that can meet the deepest needs of anyone's soul. And in the New Testament, any kind of miraculous sign of the Spirit is meant to point to Christ. And therefore, folks, the Spirit-filled person is not going to do anything that will ultimately draw attention to himself or distract from the gospel. The person who is filled and empowered by the Spirit always deflects attention from himself and puts it on Christ and the gospel. That's how you know if someone is operating out of the Spirit. Those 120 disciples could have spoken about all kinds of things in tongues, but if they didn't speak about the gospel, not a single one of those 3,000 people would have been saved on that day because it's the message of the gospel that saves, and only the message of the gospel that saves. And all of their tongue speaking would have been useless otherwise. Which is why I am so confounded when some ministries spend so much time and so much effort pursuing and emphasizing and chasing after signs and wonders and strange mystical phenomena, and there's virtually zero gospel preaching. Zero gospel preaching. We just want our ears tickled, and we want sensationalistic phenomena, and we want a rah-rah feel-good time, and there's no gospel. And there's no putting Jesus on display. There's no offering him as the bread of life and as the true treasure. 
and as the one who must be at the center of everything you need. The Apostle Paul, who is no stranger to signs and wonders, does not hang his hat on signs and wonders, but on the gospel. He says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. To the Jew and also to the Greek, folks, that is shorthand for saying people of every race and nation and language. And that's yet another Acts 2 application for us. The phenomena of tongues is God's signal that his saving message is for all peoples everywhere, not just for people who look like you, who talk like you, who have the same heritage or or language as you or the same hobbies as you, or for people that you're just more comfortable hanging out with. There's no place for for racism or, or cultural snobbery in the kingdom of God. Pentecost reminds us that we are all great sinners, but Jesus offers himself as a great savior to all peoples everywhere, and he's commissioned us to cross those barriers with the good news of salvation that reconciles man to God and man to fellow man overcoming the curse of Babel. Here's a final point of application. Their gospel witness on that day was done through the Spirit's empowerment. And the Spirit's empowerment that Jesus promises to his disciples is not ultimately tongues. In fact, tongues only happens a couple of other times in Acts and at very strategic points in Acts. 99% of the gospel preaching in Acts isn't through tongues. What we do see more commonly in Acts is Christians having the ability to clearly and persistently proclaim the gospel with boldness and with conviction and with clarity. The Bible never promised to empower every believer to speak in tongues, but the Holy Spirit does empower every believer to speak the gospel in spite of your weaknesses in spite of your flaws, in spite of the fact that you have nothing in and of yourself that the world might be impressed by or influenced by. And I know sometimes we can just we can make it all about ourselves. Well, I, I just don't speak good, and I'm not, I'm not eloquent, and, and I don't have all the, all the answers, and, and I don't know this book as, as well as I should, and we make it all about us as, as if the Holy Spirit has not come and He's not in us. And we completely discount Him. Folks, for 2,000 years, the Spirit has used ordinary believers like you and ordinary believers like me to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth because success in the mission, folks, doesn't hinge on your strength and your ability, but on His strength working through your weakness. And that's how it's always been. Think about what's happening here in Acts 2. Think about Peter and those original disciples If all you knew about them was what we had in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would be totally unimpressed and you would be worried about this mission. (laughs) Those guys were nobodies. Some of them were from backwood, hick country towns that other people made fun of. None of them had political clout or influence. None of them were wealthy. None of them were in the higher social circles. Some of them were rough, uneducated fishermen. One of them was a tax collector whom everyone hated. One of them was an ex-terrorist revolutionary. Not only were they nobodies, but they were failures. They were selfish. 
They fell into unbelief on multiple occasions. They had no courage. When Jesus was arrested, they all turned tail and ran. When somebody said to Peter, hey, I recognize you. Aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? Peter's like, not not, not me, no. I don't know what you're talking about. And, And you remember she was like, no, no, no. You've had one of those funny Galilean accents. You're with him. No, 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 I'm not with him. But now, you come to the book of Acts, and what do you see? They are running out in the streets, in in the very city where 50 days ago their master was strung up and nailed to a piece of wood to die. This is the city where all of Jesus' enemies are, his murderers are here. And and what are these disciples doing? They are running out into the streets and they are proclaiming the gospel and they're talking about Jesus. I can't think of a better way to put a target on your back. Later on in this chapter, Peter is going to to, uh, preach to an audience of thousands and he's gonna point his finger at them and say, you crucified that man. But God has raised him and made him Lord and made him king, so you better repent, believe the gospel, and submit to him. And you wonder, who is this man and what has he done with Peter? Is this the same guy? It is, but it isn't. He's filled with the Spirit. The Spirit's the difference maker. The presence of Jesus is right there with him, giving him courage and the ability to speak just like Jesus promised. This is the power that led these disciples to stare death in the face and say to the authorities, you can do whatever you want, you can threaten us and you can beat us, but we will not stop preaching about this man. This is the power, this is the spirit that for the past 2,000 years has, has worked in ordinary men and women. It was the spirit who emboldened believers to risk their lives defying the heresy of the medieval Catholic church. It was the spirit that gave believers the courage to translate the Bible into the language of the people even though there were threats on every side and it was, it was illegal. Just reading about, about William Tyndale who was strangled to death over this issue. It was the spirit that gave him the boldness and the zeal to do it. It was the spirit that gave missionaries like John Patton and Hudson Taylor and Amy Carmichael and Adoniram Judson and Eric Liddell and and Jim Elliott to set aside their comforts and even their lives to, to get the gospel to unreached peoples. If you don't know who any of those people are, you need to find out. Ordinary men, ordinary women. But what amazing, extraordinary things that they were able to do for the sake of the kingdom because the Spirit was working in them, emboldening them and empowering them. You thought they were doing all these things because they were awesome. No. It was the awesome Spirit clothing them with power from on high and working through them. And here's the thing. Here's the takeaway. This is the exact same Spirit that dwells in you. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that those who belong to Christ have the Spirit of Christ in them. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit in him. And the same Holy Spirit that has been working in this incredible way for 2,000 years to get the gospel out is the same Spirit that can give you the courage to open your mouth for Christ in the workplace or in your school for Christ. 
even if it means ridicule, even if it means rejection, even if it means you lose some relationships along the way, even if it means you lose a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or even if you get fired from your job. It's the same Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Peter in the 120 to testify to an entire city about Christ can empower you to testify to Christ to your neighbors and even to strangers. Friends, the only way that Jesus' mission to get the gospel to the ends of the earth will be fulfilled is through you. Through you. You are the means that God has ordained to bring His blessing to the nations. And oh, that Harbin's church, oh, that Harbin's church would be a more spirit-filled church. By that, I don't mean miraculous tongue speaking. I mean bold gospel preaching. It's the only means by which men and women and boys and girls may be saved. Friends, we already have the Spirit. That's the good news. But we must rely on Him more. We must pray for His empowering. We must stop living life as if we were self-sufficient. We must yield to Him and walk in step with Him by submitting to His breathed-out Word. As Romans 8, 5 says, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And as you do so, and as you rely on the Spirit and lean on the Spirit and pray for the Spirit's empowering and, and, and blessing and help, and as you're submissive to the Spirit, as you do that, you may be finding yourself very surprised by what might be coming out of your mouth. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the Holy Spirit. And we know that the Spirit is the one who sanctifies us, regenerates us, makes us holy, and makes us more like Christ. But it doesn't stop there, Father. We know also that Your Spirit is meant to empower us and equip us to go and take the Gospels to the nations. And so, Father, I pray that You would help us to take that Gospel witnessing mandate more seriously and that we would rely on the Spirit to help us to do it. Yes, one of the marks of being a Spirit-filled person is indeed being a Jesus-testifying person. And if we're not about the business of testifying to Jesus, then it must mean that we need more of the Spirit's influence in our life. And so I pray that that influence would come, would come. Now, that's this year in 2021, we would be more of a gospel-preaching, gospel-proclaiming people. And I don't know if you would plan to take our little church of 120 and extend it to 3,000. But Father, would you add to our numbers? Would you, would you see to it that we might see more people saved through our gospel preaching and our witness? Father, thank you so much for Christ who died for us and who has been raised for us and who has ascended for us and who has given us the Spirit for us and for the nations. 
In Jesus' name, amen.